my heart is uh, these last couple of weeks, last week and this week, my heart is just to leave you with some things to consider from God's Word in regards to the last days. It is, it is my belief that we live in those days today and, and have been living in them now for about 2,000 years since the time of Christ. And Jesus promised at the end of the book of Revelation that he was coming back soon. And um, that was 2,000 years ago, and so we believe that he's coming back soon, even possibly today. And we want to make sure that everybody is ready for that, watching and ready and anticipating the Lord's return and um, motivated by that and, and also persevering because of it. And that's what brings us to Matthew 24 and 25. These, uh, this is known as the Olivet Discourse, a time where Jesus, just prior to his crucifixion, is teaching his disciples, um, encouraging them about the events that are getting ready to take place, uh, teaching them about the events that are getting ready to take place, which to them was somewhat confusing. They didn't understand it. They didn't comprehend it until after the resurrection took place, the Holy Spirit comes, lives within them, and makes it clear to them all of the truths that Christ had taught them. And so uh, that was our focus last week and this week. We'll, we'll close this out. The title of this morning's message is The Harvest of the Last Days, Part 2. Last week we learned three characteristics of the final harvest. We learned that it is a time of distinguishing or discerning in the final days that we are here on this earth, the uh, trials and tribulations that the world will face, the purpose of them will be to distinguish the wheat from the tares and the goats from the sheep. One of the things that you will find to become more prominent as we get closer to the Lord's return is that there will be a distinguishing between the true followers of Christ and those who are not true followers of Christ. Uh, those who possess the Holy Spirit and those who profess the Holy Spirit, those who know Christ and those who claim to know Christ. And it's going to become more prominent because it's going to cost you more to be a follower of Jesus. And any religion that teaches that it doesn't cost to be a follower of Jesus is not teaching truth, it's teaching error. And we live in a generation and we live in a, a season, if you will, in the last days of religions that are going to become more and more prominent and powerful because they teach a priceless Christianity. And there is no distinction made between those who are false converts and those who are true converts. But we also know that in the end, there will be a distinguishing and there will be a remnant that will stand out as being true followers of Christ. And there will be a, a mass of people on the broad road that leads to destruction who will profess Christ but not possess Christ. And there's a big difference in that. And the, um, the, the Gospels teach it, the, the Epistles teach it, and, and then Revelation really displays it, uh, puts it on display for us. So we learned last week the last days will be a time of distinguishing. It will be a time that no one will know the day or the hour. Uh, no, we're not meant to set dates or times when the Lord's going to return but we are meant to know the seasons. The Bible says it will be like the days of Noah and like the days of Lot. Men will be living without any consideration of God or men will be, be, be living in absolute rebellion against God. The days of Noah, men were just eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. In other words, they were going through life without any reference or respect or reverence for God. 
In the days of Lot, men were living in absolute detestable sins, um, primarily sexual sins, but really sins of all sorts. And they were living in absolute rebellion against God without any recognition of God, uh, without any respect for God. And you know, it's amazing. The respect comes when the the respect comes when the first drops of rain start to fall, right? The respect comes when the first fiery um, uh, hail starts to fall from the sky. The respect comes, but when that happens, the doors are shut, aren't they? And there will be a day when the world will fall down and bow their knee before the God of the universe because he will force them to do so. And when that happens, the world will be condemned because there is no hope for them. The doors to the ark are shut. And it is our job as the church to be mindful of that and to be sharing the gospel with those around us in an honest way, sharing the truth with people around us about God's coming judgment, about the fact that there is a redeemer, there is an ark. And listen, if they don't believe that the rain is going to come, they're not going to get on the ark, so you better convince them about the rain coming. We've done a great job of convincing people of the ark without any rain. And it's exactly what failed the first time and it will fail again people need to know that there's rain coming and it's not rain like we saw in genesis 6 it's going to be the rain of god's wrath in revelation 6 through 19 but it is coming isn't it it is coming and people need to know about it they need to know the truth we need to share it with them to them in love but they need to know that there is a judgment that god is going to pour out on this world and those who are not in the ark are going to are going to suffer the consequences of their sin and they need to get in the ark now listen it's not our job to put them in the ark it's not our job to convince them to get in the ark it's not our job to to paint the ark certain pretty pretty colors to make them want to be in it it's our job to tell them that the rain is going to come and the ark is the only way that they're going to be going to be delivered from it right it's what evangelism is we're not meant to set uh, we're not meant to set days or times we're meant to be aware of the season of what we're, what we're going, to, going to face and then, and then be diligent in sharing the gospel with others. We learned last week that the final harvest is final. It is forever. Once the harvest takes place, the Lord reaps the earth. You'll either be blessed for eternity or you will be judged for eternity. You will either face God's favor and his love and his kindness for the rest of uh, eternity, which there's no end to it, or you will face God's judgment and his wrath for the rest of eternity. The, um, the, uh, uh, the decision seems simple, doesn't it? I mean, when you present it that way, it just seems simple. I don't want to face God's wrath for the rest of eternity. The issue isn't, isn't whether or not people want to face God's wrath for the rest of eternity or they want to face God's blessing for the rest of eternity. The issue is, is do they want to have Christ in their life for the rest of eternity. And that's the challenge. Um, so in the, middle of this, in the middle of this narrative, in the middle of Jesus teaching his disciples, he brings out three parables on the, on the, in this Olivet Discourse. And that's what we're going to focus this morning on, in these three parables, uh, three tales, if you will. Jesus is telling them stories to help them understand this this distinguishing event that's going to take place at the final harvest where God is going to take the wheat and he's going to take the tares and he's going to separate them and he's going to throw the tares into the fire and burn them. He's going to take the wheat and he's going to gather it into his barns. 
which is a, a symbol or a terminology that's used to, des- to describe heaven. Three parables. We're going to look at them this morning. There's a parable of two servants, a parable of ten virgins, and a parable of three stewards. Okay? And we'll look at each one of them separately, and we'll look at three truths that cover all of them and, and hopefully gain some, some uh, encouragement and strength from them. Remember this. Because salvation is a supernatural and inward work, Because salvation is a supernatural and inward work, we are told in Scripture to examine ourselves to see if whether or not we are in the faith. Salvation is not something that you do. It's not something that you accomplish. There's nothing that you can do and say, well, I did this, and therefore I know that I am saved. Salvation is a work of God that takes place on the inside of you, and it works itself to the outside of you. The evidence that a person is saved is their fruits, not their works. There's a difference between fruits and works. The evidence of a person's salvation is not the works that they do, it's the fruits of their life. It's the things that come out of them naturally because God has planted in them supernaturally. So we are to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. We are to examine ourselves to see whether or not we're sheep or goats. We're to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are wheat or tares. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says it this way, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this, do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I want to read from a, 2 Peter chapter 1, if you want to turn there with me, you are welcome to do so. If you want to just listen, that's fine as well. 2 Peter chapter number 1 encourages us in this way, beginning in verse number 5. For this very reason, make, make every effort to supplement your faith, or some versions say to add to your faith, to add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, steadfastness, and steadfastness, godliness, and godliness, brotherly affection, and brotherly affection, love. He's like, add these things. And what he's he's saying is, is he's saying to these things are evidences, they're proofs of a person being a believer. If If you're not growing in the faith, if these things are not being added to you, then you might not be a follower of Christ, right? If we're not getting better at righteousnesses, but we're instead getting better at sinning, there's something wrong. We expect the world who is by nature sinful and unrighteous, we expect them to grow in sinfulness, don't we? Right? We expect the world to get more and more wicked because that's their nature, that's their character, that's who they are, right? Can we and should we expect believers to grow in righteousness because they are a new creation in Christ and their nature has been changed? Should we expect, as much as we expect the world to grow in unrighteousness, should we expect the righteous or Christians to grow in righteousness? And I believe the answer is yes. We should expect for believers to be growing in righteousness. And that's why he says here, to add these things 
to you. In other words, these things need to be um, revealing who you are. You need to be growing in these things because it's evidence that's of, what's, of something being right inside of you. And you think about a little baby. When a baby is born over time, if that baby doesn't grow, if that baby remains small or remains on milk or doesn't ever grow to eat food, we, we take them to the doctor because we conclude that there's a problem with them, right? Because then naturally there's some things that we want to, we expect to see, you know, the baby comes out of the womb and if that baby doesn't cry or make noise, the doctor, what does the doctor do? They get frantic, don't they? And they will get a little tube and try to suck things out of their lungs and maybe pinch them or whatever. But they want that baby to, to, to there's certain expectations, even from a baby just coming out of the womb, that the doctor expects to hear. And if they don't hear those things or see those things, they are concerned. It's the same thing with the Christian faith. There are certain things that there ought to be present in an individual's life because they are new creation. He says in verse number eight, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election or to make your calling and election sure For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You will never fail. As long as these things are growing in you, it will create confidence and it will create assurance of your conversion. A.W. Tozer said it this way, and this is a quote of sorts. It's a quote the best that I could remember it when I read it, so... I don't know if it's 100% word for word, but it's got quotation marks around it, so it's a quote. Tozer said it this way, I would rather stand before God now when I can do something about it than to wait and face him on judgment day when I can do nothing. Let me read that to you again. I would rather stand before God now when I can do something about it than to wait and face him on judgment day when I can do nothing. So there are three parables here in chapter 24 and 25, and the purpose of them is for us to understand this this final harvest and this distinction that's going to take place in in this final harvest. As we look at these parables... And unfold them, let's remember two simple truths. Number one, be humble and honest about your condition. Be humble and honest about your condition. Romans 12 and verse 3 admonishes us, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you to think of himself, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Be honest and humble about who you are. The fruits that are coming out of your life, don't deny them. Learn from them. Listen to them. And ask God to change you. If your tree, listen to me folks, if your tree constantly produces apples, 
you might be an apple tree. If your tree constantly produces oranges, you might be an orange tree. And you can go out on your tree every year and pull all of the apples off and get your best duct tape out and tape a bunch of oranges on that tree and that tree can look like an orange tree like no one's business. But next year, when that harvest comes, you know what's going to grow on that tree? Apples are going to grow on that tree again. Do you know why? Because you're an apple tree. And the Bible says in Matthew 7 that, that a good tree does not produce bad fruit and a bad tree does not produce good fruit. In other words, an apple tree does not produce oranges. And an orange tree does not produce apples. At the same time, the solution is, if you're an apple tree and you recognize it, you can come to the, to the tree creator. Right? And he can make you into what? He can make you into an orange tree. He can do whatever he wants to your roots. But it takes a root transformation, not a fruit transformation. The fruit is just there to show you who you are so that you will come to the one who can change your roots. And the roots is where the transformation is needed. And when we stand before God one day, he's not going to look at our fruits, he's going to look at our roots. We get to look at our fruits, but if we don't listen to them, if we're not honest with ourselves and not um, sober and, and humble about who we are, then our fruits will be glaring to us our entire lives and we'll stand before God one day and our, and our roots will be revealed. That's what fruits are for. Fruits are meant for us to see who we are. Right? Matthew 7, by your fruits you will know a person. They're meant to show us who we are. Not so that we can fix our fruits, but so we can go to the one who can change our roots. Right? That's what we need. We need to be transformed by the grace of God in salvation to make us into new creations. And then next harvest season, you'll start producing oranges. And guess what will become a, will become a realization to you? I'm an orange tree. I was an apple tree, but now I'm an orange tree. Right? Remember Jesus healed the blind man and they asked him, explain what happened. I don't know how to explain it. I was blind, but now I can see. No, no explanation for it. Just the reality. So let's look at it together. To start with in your, in your outline, we start with the parables. Three parables. Two servants, ten virgins, three stewards. These parables are unique to the book of Matthew. They're what's called, um, uh, they're called uh, kingdom parables. The only one that's not unique to Matthew is the first one, the two servants, and we find that one in, in Mark as well, chapter 13, verse 32 through 37. I'm going to read them if you just want to follow along with me, and then we're going to unpack a few truths about them. The Bible says in verse 45 of Matthew 24, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. 
But if a wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunks, the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on the day when he does not expect him and in an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and, and portion him or send him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the, the per, first parable is simple. You have two servants. They're serving in a household. The master is going to leave for a season, going to go on a journey. It's a picture of Christ in his resurrection. He left for a season. He left for now for 2,000 years. And he says to his people that I want you to take care of the things that I have, I have left for you to take care of. The church would be a, 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 I think if you go back to Christ, the church is that place that the, his people are supposed to take care of. So we, we could think of it this way. There are two servants. Jesus Christ leaves. He leaves the church, or you could leave it with the disciples, the 12. He says to them, take care of my church. Take care of my church. Care for my church. One of those servants stays faithful, continues, even though 2,000 years have passed, one of those servants just continues to faithfully serve the Lord in, in, in the church, in the body of Christ. The other one forsakes caring for the body of Christ, becomes, becomes belligerent towards the, the church or towards the people that they're, that they're serving, begins to uh, involve themselves in partying and, and, and drunkenness and in moral activity. In, in, in other words, they begin to become sensual in their lifestyle. And we, we see this happening around us today. Pastors are falling by the wayside every single day, morally, financially, whatever might be the, um, the failure of the day amongst ministers. It, it is happening amongst us because they're, listen to me, they're identifying themselves, what they're doing. They're showing what's in their heart. For years, they faithfully tried to, to put on, to put a display on of, of things that were not in their heart. And now the, the season has come. They've been, they've been uh, perhaps become um, frustrated with the waiting or realizing that it's not worth it or whatever. And, that, and all of a sudden, all their sensuality and their sinfulness starts to come to the surface. That's these two servants here. They're both called, I think we could go back to Genesis chapter number one in the garden when God creates Adam, what does he tell him to do? The same thing he tells these two servants to do, right? Which is what? Care for what I've created. Take care of what I've created. God gives these two servants the same calling, the same responsibility. What are they to do? They're to care for what he's given them. And you know something? There's not a human being on the face of the earth that doesn't have that calling. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Care for what I created. Care for what I created. And if you, again, you go to the New Testament, it's the church. Care for what I created. Let's go on to the second. And obviously you see the, you see the results and the, and the fruits of it. And we'll, we'll unpack those here in a moment. We go to the second parable, which is, uh, beginning of chapter 25, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to, went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And just a note here, the oil is just a, a picture in the uh, biblical vernacular to uh, represent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was 
pictured by oil. And so they were, some of them had the Holy Spirit, and initially all of them had some sense of the Holy Spirit. They all left with the, uh, uh, some type of connectedness to the Holy Spirit. They get to a certain place or a certain time in their life, and, and the Holy Spirit is no longer um, there for a certain group of them, for half of them. The other ones have a continue, continual um, relationship or connectedness or a continual flow of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament references it like a, an oil lamp being planted by two trees where the oil from those trees is just constantly feeding this oil lamp and the oil runs down and it feeds the lamp and so the lamp is, the lamp is constantly burning. And so the oil is there being feeding that constantly and the oil is, the oil supplier is the Holy Spirit, right? He is the oil Five of the virgins don't take any, any oil, extra oil with them. They don't have enough when it comes time for, the, for them to make it to the, the remainder of the journey. The other five make it. The Bible goes on to say, um, as the bride, verse number five, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Man, listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. This principle is all throughout Scripture. We believe in eternal security. Once you're saved, you're always saved. But you need to understand this. The Bible is clear that there are people that play around with the Holy Spirit. They mess with him. They try to experience him. They like to go to church on Sunday because they get a feeling of the Holy Spirit. But, but honestly, that is what Hebrews chapter number six deals with when it says that they experienced the Holy Spirit, but they fell away from grace. They never had the Holy Spirit. They had, they had fun with him. He was a playmate. And whatever he would give them, they would take. They didn't have him. And when it boiled down to, when, the, when it came to the end of things, when it came to the time of seriousness, when it came to the time of reckoning, their friendship with the Holy Spirit wasn't going to work. Their playfulness with the Holy Spirit wasn't going to get them anywhere. Their experience of the Holy Spirit at some revival meeting or at some event wasn't going to make it, wasn't going to get them to the end. And some of us live there. We have experiences, but we don't have relationship. We don't possess, we profess. We claim something to be true, but we don't have the, the essence of that thing. The Bible goes on, the wise answered saying, since there, there's not enough for us, for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with them to the marriage feast and the door was shut. In other words, go, go into town and have another experience and maybe you'll get enough to make it a little bit further. The problem is, is that's not the way that it works. Experiential, an experiential a partnership with the Holy Spirit that is not relational will always keep you one step away from being to the destiny, to the end. Afterwards, all the virgins came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. 
the same terminology that he uses in Matthew 7, where he says, have we not done miracles in your name, and have we not prophesied in your name, and have we not done many works in your name? And you know what he says to them? I never knew you. He doesn't even say, I don't know you. He says, I never knew you. He says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The ten virgins. And then the last parable that's given here, the last tale, the last story that Jesus uses is the story of three stewards. A steward is just somebody that's been given the the responsibility to care for somebody else's things. This specifically is related to the Holy Spirit giving us gifts, uh, talents, what we would call them in our modern vernacular, but the Holy Spirit gives us gifts to use for his glory. And as we see in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, not everybody used them for his glory. People played with them and messed with them and manipulated them and did evil with them. Let's read it together. For it, was, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servant and entrusted to him the property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he who had five talents, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will make you ruler over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So obviously the first, the first uh, um, steward takes the five things that God gave him, whether you be, think of it as money or gifts or skills or whatever. He takes those five talents and he uses them in such a way as to multiply them, to double them. So whether you look at that as from somebody taking the salvation that God has given them and evangelizing and they, and they produce five more souls. You take the gifts that you use and you use them for the Lord and it produces double of what he has given you. And he says to him, well done, good and faithful servant. And he says, he enters into the joy of the Lord, which is another term for heaven. He also who had two talents came forward saying, master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little I will set you over much, enter into the joy of your master. Kind of the same thing taking place there. It's important to note that you don't have a distinct, you have three here. You know, it's like it's nice to have 10 because you get five and five or two because you get one and one. But here you have three. And the reason for it is, is that God is making a statement about the fact it doesn't matter how many talents you're given. You can get one talent, you can get two talents, or you can get five talents. The issue isn't how many you have. The issue is what do you do with the talents God has given you? He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew, that you, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid 
and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, here, you have what is yours. His master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reaped where I had not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have at least received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away from him. These are those who are in their, they're claiming Christianity and they're always declining in their Christianity. What they have is continuously being taken away from them. There's no growth, there's just decline. And they may start off on cloud nine and by the time that they're done, they're on cloud two or cloud one, but they're constantly losing the things that they had at one point. There's a problem with that. Two of them doubled, started off with a number, doubled it. The last one started off with a number and lost it. He didn't lose it, but he did lose it because God took it away from him. Some Christians today are in that very boat. They're, they're, they're just decline, 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 decline. And they, they cling to some experience that they had. They cling to a prayer that they said. They, they cling to a baptism that they experienced. They cling to taking the Lord's Supper or something, but their Christianity is like this. There's a problem with that. They're losing what they have. I've often said this about the Christian versus the non-Christian. The non-Christian's life is marked by his successes with the Lord. Have we not prophesied in your name and have we not done many miracles in your name? The reason why the non-Christian recognizes their successes is because the pattern of their life is down. What do you notice when the pattern of your life is down? You notice your peaks. I went to church on Sunday. I put my money in the offering plate. I did the ceremonies and the sacraments. But your pattern of life is this. But you have these. And all you want to do is you want to talk about your mountaintops. Because no one wants to talk about this. This is the fruit of your life. But this is the peaks. You know what's unique about a believer? A believer's life always focuses on their what? They always focus on their failures. Why? Because the pattern of their life is this. But the peaks of their life are these. That's why the Apostle Paul says every time he shares his testimony, what does he talk about? He talks about his failures. He recognizes, identifies with the fact that he's not worthy. He doesn't focus on this because it's just the pattern of his life. It's who he is. You know, you go out golfing or something like that. You don't focus on the fact that you, you shot the same score you did. You focus on that one hole that you got a special score on, right? Or whatever might be the case. Because it's, it's the opposite of your pattern. People who are always talking about their successes, there's something wrong with it because it obviously goes against the pattern of their life. The Christian should be on a constant scale of successes for Christ. And they will notice, man, you know, I failed. And the non-Christian does the exact opposite. They do little things, but there is no relationship with Christ. And they're just slowly losing. 
And then they get that little hope, that little glimmer, right? It starts off like it's a mountain, and by the time they're done, it's just a little hill, but it's enough for them. He says, uh, but the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. And he says, and cast this worthless servant into outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's some pretty serious, some pretty, pretty seriousness. There's seriousness to these parables. The Lord is making a strong, solid statement here as he teaches his disciples about this generation that's getting ready to come that they're going to be left to deal with. And, um, and they're going to be left to, to, to show them and to teach the truth. And this is the generation that we live in. So there you have the parables. I want to spend the rest of our time looking at two other things. Number one is the similarities in the parables. And that's where we're at right here. The parables and now the similarities. There, there are five, I think, things that I want you to recognize. And, and you might find more because I really I got to a point where it's like I need to just uh, kind of cap this puppy off and give the, give the stuff that's important. So let me give you some things that are similar about these, these, these uh, individuals. The similarities, number one, is you have the same master or the same bridegroom. Both servants were in the same house, right? Both, both all of the ten virgins were going to the same wedding. It was the same bridegroom. The three, the three um, stewards in the, in, in the remainder of the last part of this, they all are serving the same master. True? They're all, it's the, it's the same master in every situation. It's the same person given the instructions. It's the same person given the talents. It's the same person given the, giving the responsibility. It's the same person giving the call to come to the wedding. It's the same master. It's the same bridegroom. In every situation. The same as in Matthew 7, where you have two houses, one built on the sand, one built on the stone. The houses look exactly the same above the ground. What's what's not the same is what's under the ground. It's the same master. Each one of them is responding to God. He is their master, and He is our master. And the reality of it is, He is everyone's master. Is he not? He is the creator of everybody. Everybody is responsible to God. Whether they like it or not, the issue isn't whether they like it at this point. The issue is, is we all have the same master. And that's what we see here in in these three parables. It's the same master for the saved, the same master for the lost. The same master for the true convert, the same master for the false convert. The same bridegroom for the virgins that make it there. The same bridegroom for the virgins that don't make it there. The same master. Number two, it's the same opportunity. It's the same opportunity. They're in the same household. They have the same possessions. They have the same opportunity. The virgins all have the opportunity to have the oil the Holy Spirit, the spiritual gifts at the end, they're all, it's the, the opportunity is presented to all of them. It's given to all of them. Both the believer and the unbeliever has the same opportunity. Number three, it's the same calling. In the first parable, it's a calling of responsibility. 
the responsibility to care for and protect God's stuff, God's creation, God's church. It's the same calling. Saved people have the same calling as lost people do. They just respond differently. They have the same calling to possess the Holy Spirit, to take the oil in their lamp. Some of them take this calling uh, seriously, and they respond to the Holy Spirit correctly. You think about it. The Bible says in John 16, verses 8 through 11, that the Holy Spirit comes and he convicts the world of righteousness. He convicts the world of sin. He convicts the world of coming judgment, right? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Who does he do that to? Well, it looks like in our text, he does it to everybody. You can't look around you and not have conviction of the Holy Spirit about righteousness, sin, and coming judgment. It's, it's, it's all around us. Even the most darkest tribe in the world that doesn't have, many of them don't have languages, they don't have um, much of a religious, most of them have some type of a sacrificial system in place. Why? Because they know that they're sinner and they know that there's judgment coming. Romans 1 says that no man will have an excuse because they all have the natural evidence around them of God being holy and them being sinful. Some take the Holy Spirit seriously and they respond in submission. Others refuse to give any regard to the Holy Spirit or they simply minimize the Holy Spirit. And some even blaspheme the Holy Spirit. But some take the Holy Spirit very lightly. They involve themselves with him ceremonially. They involve themselves with him situationally. Or they involve themselves with him selfishly. But they don't submit or surrender to the very purpose of the Holy Spirit coming, which is to convict the world of righteousness, of sin, and of coming judgment. Do we believe that, that's, do we believe that what the Holy Spirit says is true? This is the call for all of us. The whole world needs to know what the Holy Spirit has to say. Stewardship of the spiritual gifts, using the spiritual gifts for the kingdom and not for self, using spiritual gifts to grow in Christ's image, using the spiritual gifts rightly is what we're all called to do with the things that God has given us. You know, the reality of it is, is God has given us a lot of things in the world around us, hasn't he? And you know, the number one reason that God has given us all of those things is that we might glorify him with them, right? He gives them to the saved, and he gives them to the lost. And do you know what he says to every one of us? Glorify me with them. And he holds everyone accountable for their glorifying him with them. The same calling for all of the people in these parables. It's the same characteristics of people. Two servants, three stewards, same jobs, same responsibilities, the virgins, all of it's the same. I find it interesting that this, I find this interesting though. If you look at the story of the virgins, the middle parable, I found it interesting this. All of the virgins fell asleep when the bridegroom was coming, didn't they? The Bible tells them, don't fall asleep. Be awake and be alert. But guess what? 
We all fail the same, don't we? Don't we? We all fall short the same. Of all the ten virgins, how many of them fell asleep? All of them. The Lord said, stay awake. How many of them fell asleep? Every one of them. Not only did all ten of the virgins fall asleep, but how many of them woke up when the bridegroom came? All of them. They all fell asleep, and they all woke up when the bridegroom came. The difference at the end of the day, while they all fell asleep together, which was against what the Lord had commanded, they all woke up together, which is what the Lord commanded. At the end of the day, what mattered and what, diff, what, diff, what made the difference was how many of them had the oil. Get, get that. You're going to fail. You're going to fall asleep. And what's going to matter at the end? Do you have the oil? Do you have the Holy Spirit living within you? It's the same characteristics. All the people have the same characteristics. They all struggle with the same thing. The last thing under, the, um, under this point of the similarities is the same test. One of the things that you'll notice is the test is exactly the same. It's stated in a, a very simple term in two of the parables and a little bit different term in the third. It's simply this. The test is time. The Bible says in the beginning, in the first and the last parable, that the Lord was delayed. And in the middle parable, it says that after a long time, maybe I have that, I think it's the last parable, it says after a long time. But two parables, the Lord is delayed. The third parable, it says after a long time. What is the test? The test is time. What proves a person to be a true convert or a false convert? is time. It's time. The longer the Lord delays his coming, the more evident true converts will become and the more evident false converts will become. Because the false converts will want to live for fun. They'll want to be partying with their buddies and drinking and getting drunk and and having sexual... They want to start giving into their flesh. It's like, man, he's waited. He's, He's tarried this long... Remember when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the commandments? How long was he gone? 40 days. What did they do when he was gone for 40 days? We didn't know if Moses was going to come back. He's been gone so long. We're going to make ourselves an idol to worship, and we're going to all live in sexual immorality. What was the test of those people? Time. The test was time. The test is always time. And you can go through your whole life. Ezekiel tells us this. You can go through your whole life and be righteous, righteous, righteous. And the very end, you can fall away from all of your righteousness and be condemned. Not because you weren't righteous enough. You weren't righteous enough. Because you were proven at the last moment. At the same time, you can go through your whole life living unrighteous. And the Bible says, and repent and put your faith in Christ at the end and be forgiven like the thief on the cross. What proves? It's the same test for every one of us. And it is the test of time. 
It's the test of time. That's why the book of 1 John, which is written about the evidence of a person being a convert, being a true believer, it's all, every evidence written in the book of 1 John is written in the present tense. It never says, look at what was going on yesterday in your life. It says, look at what's going on today in your life. If you want to know whether you're a follower of Christ, it's not what happened yesterday. It's what's happening right now. The test is the same. James 1, 2, and 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces patience or, or steadfastness, and steadfastness, and let steadfastness or patience have its full effect that you may be complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. Time. Time proves us and time perfects us. The last point this morning is the distinctions. This is what distinguishes us. First of all, there's three, there's three distinctions, and there are probably more, but I didn't want to deal with the additional ones just because of time. First of all, the nature of the ones being tested. Remember this, the problem is a heart problem. It's not a works problem. It's not doing the right thing or doing the... It's the heart is the problem. The heart is the issue. And so the nature of the one being tested is the distinction. You will find in those three parables, the ones that respond correctly are called wise and faithful. Notice this. They're not wise and faithful because they respond correctly. They respond correctly because they are wise and faithful. God has put it in their heart to be wise and faithful, and therefore the proper fruit comes out of that. You get that backwards, and you try to create wise and faithful by doing works, and you will become discouraged and defeated. You need to ask God to make you wise and faithful, and then you will produce the right fruits. The other two are called foolish and hypocritical. The other servant is called foolish and hypocritical. Notice this. A hypocrite is somebody who puts a mask on. Is somebody who tries to, tries to present something about himself on the outside that's not true about him on the inside. The word literally means mask. Something's broken on the inside that we're masking on the outside. The only problem with that, folks, is, is we may fool each other, but we won't fool God. The Bible tells us everything is open and naked before him with whom we have to give an account. The wise and faithful versus the foolish and the hypocritical. The wise and prepared versus the foolish and the unprepared. The last one is the good and faithful and fruitful servant versus the bad, the fearful, and the unfruitful servant. The one thing that I think is the most important to point out in the last parable is simply this. The servant who did nothing with his gift, the one thing that dominated his life about God is that he was about, the one thing that dominated his life was fear. The same God, the same master. The only thing that the one man could notice was all of the negative things about God. How much he was afraid of him. Were those things true about God in general? For all of the servants? 
Two acted in faith. One acted in fear. I'm going to just bury this in the, the master is a very harsh person. I'm very afraid of him. I don't want to fail. I don't want to mess up what he's given me. No recognition of grace, no recognition of mercy, no recognition of forgiveness, just totally consumed by fear. And the other one say, no, really no recognition of fear, all recognition of faith. And faith doesn't, remember this, faith doesn't disregard fear, does it? Faith doesn't disregard fear. Faith understands fear. Faith responds to fear. The nature of the ones being tested, number two, is the response to the testing. Those who persevere in obedience in the first parable versus those who become weary of waiting and abuse people and start partying or living what I would call is sensual lives. Living in subject to your senses versus living in obedience to Christ. The Bible talks about the God becoming your appetite or your belly. Your God is your belly. Those who persevere in obedience are believers. Those who are, become weary of waiting and abuse people and start to live sensually are revealed as unbelievers. Number two, those who have prepared by submitting to the Holy Spirit, possessing the Holy Spirit, having a relationship with the Holy Spirit, versus those who are unprepared, who have played games with the Holy Spirit, perhaps used the Holy Spirit for selfish ambitions, or even used the gifts of the Holy Spirit to promote self. Those who submit to the Holy Spirit, who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and coming judgment, have salvation, those who play with the Holy Spirit, the games that we play with the Holy Spirit, have condemnation. The last parable, those who by faith use their spiritual gifts for God's glory and for the advancement of his kingdom versus those who in fear neglect or abuse their spiritual gifts for selfish gain or refusing to use them. Again, we get back to the fear versus faith. Fear and faith are two different sides of, the, of two different directions completely. In the same way that the flesh is the opposite of the spirit, fear is the opposite of faith. The response to the testing, and then the last thing that we see in the text is the result of the testing. Those who are blessed are given more responsibility, given greater blessing. Those who are faithful in a few things, the Bible says he will make them ruler over great things. In the kingdom of the Lord, those who become persevering in this life for the glory of God will be blessed in the next with great responsibility and blessing. Those who do not will be portioned off with the hypocrites. They'll be exposed, if you will. That's being hypocritical. Those who are welcomed at the wedding are those who are versus those who are pushed away and rejected upon arrival. The door is shut. They have no access to the, to the bridegroom. They have no access to the blessing. Then those who are welcomed into the joy of the Lord and given more 
versus those who are condemned and have their place and their part in God's wrath and punishment. These are the distinctions. In the final harvest, these are the distinctions that will be made. There will be one side who will be wheat and sheep, and another side who will be goats and tares. One side will face the blessing of the Lord and enter into the joy of the Lord. The other side will face the wrath of God and will experience his judgment and condemnation forever. In closing, it is important to remember that these characteristics don't save you. It is important to understand that none of these people were saved because they persevered, because they had oil, or because they were good stewards. They persevered, they had oil, and they were good stewards because they were saved. You deal with the heart first and the fruits come. You get it backwards and you'll have a works-oriented salvation. You will believe that you have accomplished your salvation on the basis of your goodness. These things do not save you. They simply identify you in the final harvest. They're identification marks, not ways to be saved. When the final harvest is made, the question will be answered, am I a sheep or am I a tear? And we will be marked by our fruits. Pastor Michael read this at the beginning. I'm going to read it again in closing from James 2, verses 14 through 20, and then also verse 26. The Bible says it this way. What good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving him the things needed for his body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. For those who want to argue that I believe in God, the devils believe in God as well is what he argues And they are even fearful of him. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then in verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also is faith apart from works. And I say this just in closing. The ministry of James's epistle is simply to help us understand not how to be saved but to how but how to justify that we are saved it's not the justification that brings salvation it's the justification that proves salvation faith is what saves us according to the book of Romans right but you come to James and what it adds is is you must you must produce evidence of the faith that saved you. And that evidence will be 
fruits. And you'll see the oranges on the tree because the roots have been changed. My challenge to you this morning, my plea to you, is just to evaluate your heart. Let the fruits speak to you. The things that come out of you naturally, let them show you where you're at spiritually. And then go to the one who created you and he can change you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you cared enough to give us a book that describes for us what life is like, what the end will be like, what the beginning was like, and gives us so many warnings and cautions and, and um, presses us to come to Jesus for salvation. I pray that if someone is sitting here in and can hear what, I'm, what I've just preached and what your word says, but finds themselves being fruitful of unrighteousness or um, lack of patience or full of fear or not using the things that you've blessed us with or not possessing your spirit, I pray that you would even bring conviction in their hearts now. They would come to you, the creator and sustainer of all things, and pray for a transformation that only you can give. I pray that you would help them to trust in your goodness, in your mercy, and in your grace. They would experience your salvation for your glory. I pray, Lord God, for those who are saved, that we would just be mindful of these truths, and may they encourage and strengthen us and drive us closer to you. 